The following is a rebroadcast of an episode of Talking Radical Radio originally broadcast in June 2020. My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Suhail Bensliman. The uprising against anti-black racism and police brutality that has erupted in the wake of the police murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis has created an unprecedented crisis of legitimacy for police. Huge numbers of people have been in the streets, and more people than ever who are not themselves targeted have been forced to confront the harms that policing does, particularly to black and indigenous people. We are told that police, courts, and prisons exist in the service of things like justice and safety, but radical work by people who are targeted by them and or who have devoted themselves to organizing against them teaches us that they are better understood as being about things like criminalization and punishment, that they mark certain acts and moreover certain groups of people as criminal, and then they subject them to various forms of state violence, indignity, and harm. This contributes to maintaining an unjust status quo organized through settler colonialism, anti-blackness, white supremacy, patriarchy, heterosexism, capitalism, and other relations of domination. Real justice and genuine safety, understood far more expansively than the neoliberal default and made available not just to some but to all, can only come from doing things very differently. Suhail Bensliman moved with his family from Morocco to Ottawa when he was a child. Once here, they faced grinding racism and Islamophobia, unrelenting hard work and countless barriers. As Bensliman got older, he himself faced an escalating trajectory of criminalization that culminated in five years spent in prison between 2013 and 2018. In his time inside, Bensliman found prison to be a violent and degrading place that caused harm while doing nothing positive. As he says, quote, jail never saved me, and jail never saves anyone, end quote. Any bright spots he was able to find were despite the institution, not because of it. The friendship and support of fellow prisoners, a program that brought in volunteers from the outside, and access to one of the few remaining instances in Canada where an external post-secondary institution rather than the prison itself provides educational opportunities. It was in this last where he was able to read writers like Franz Fanon and other anti-colonial and post-colonial thinkers, which began to give him the tools to name important aspects of his own experience. He faced the additional threat of deportation when he got out, the second punishment often faced by criminalized migrants after they've already served their prison sentence. In the course of fighting that, he connected with a criminology prof at University of Ottawa. He had at one point thought that when he got out he would get involved in struggles related to the environment and climate, but pretty soon he realized that his experience gave him a rich basis for theorizing and for organizing against criminalization, punishment, and the carceral state. He did so by getting involved in the Criminalization and Punishment Education Project, or CPEP, an initiative started by students and professors at the universities in Ottawa to bring together scholars, community members, frontline workers, and those targeted by criminalization and punishment to engage in public education, research, and activism. 
The project's been around since 2012. Over the years, they've done lots of public events, some demonstrations, art exhibitions, film screenings. They've published lots of reports, fact sheets, op-eds, infographics. And they've been involved in more sustained campaigns. For instance, in response to provincial plans to build a new and larger jail in Ottawa, they began the No on Prison Expansion Initiative, both opposing the new jail in Ottawa and calling for a Canada-wide prison expansion moratorium. Bensleyman himself has been centrally involved in their Jail Accountability and Information Line, which takes calls from people imprisoned at the Ottawa Carleton Detention Centre and their loved ones every weekday afternoon. They use this as a basis to work with callers in addressing human rights issues and pushing for prisoner justice. Earlier in June, for example, CPEP was active in supporting prisoners in Ottawa, including past-talking radical radio guest Deepan Budlakoti, who went on hunger strike over the jail's appalling conditions. I speak with Bensleyman about his own experiences of criminalization, about the anti-carceral work of the Criminalization and Punishment Education Project, and about what he thinks needs to be happening in this crucial moment to advance an abolitionist agenda. My name is Suhail Bensleyman. I am a father. I am a partner. I am an illegalized and criminalized migrant who lives on unceded and unsurrendered Algonquin territory. Been released from a penitentiary and immigration detention in 2018. Upon my release, I started being involved in some migrant and prisoner justice work. And since then, I've been involved with the Criminalization and Punishment Education Project, which is a group of professors, students, community members, folks who have experienced incarceration and criminalization and punishment themselves. Being a member of CPEP, I started, along with Sarah Spate, the Jail Accountability and Information Line, which is a hotline that operates Monday to Friday, 1 to 4, and also 9.30 to 11 on Tuesdays and Thursdays. It aims to hold the ministry, the government, the jail, the guards accountable for the inhumane and the mistreatment of people who are forcibly confined within that institution of human caging. I came here from Morocco as an immigrant with my family. My dad is a doctor and my mom is a pharmacist back home. When we moved here, it was very hard for them to even get a job. It was very hard for all of us because obviously we faced racism. My mom is a hijabi woman. My family are Muslim and we know that Canada, there is a strong anti-Muslim structural racism. So when I came to school, I had teachers who were trying to basically demonize my religion, demonize the people that look like me. People were being racist in class. It was a cultural shock. My father took up some precarious work. So, you know, not only those social barriers, but also experienced some other forms of barriers, which is criminalization. So when I came here, all I wanted, to be honest, in the beginning is to integrate into this society. I had friends in Morocco. Well, I wanted friends in Canada. I just wanted to have that normal life of a teenager. And that was almost impossible. And then I started overcompensating. So I hang out with some friends. Let's say if they smoke one cigarette, I would smoke five cigarettes. I just had like always to prove myself to people because if I didn't do that, I felt that I was rejected by this society. So that led me to become criminalized because there are certain actions that when some of us do them on this land, we get criminalized for. Other people would do the same actions, go out of their house, smoke weed. Now it's even legal. 
But at that time, the police used to target us in parks, used to target us in the streets, stop us, search us. Of course, we're going to be criminalized because they're going to find weed and weed is illegal. And also, I was criminalized for something even more like I shot a pellet gun from a balcony and it hit a car. And I was criminalized because of that. You know, I was arrested. And we know that experiencing confinement and experiencing human caging, even for a night, can change someone's life. So I think that sort of labeling also played a role in me further becoming involved in even more harmful behaviors because I saw myself as the person that they wanted to see me as, as that quote-unquote criminal. It was an identity that started to build because of the state, in a sense. And I started becoming worse and worse because every time I encounter the police or every time they throw me in jail, I'll become worse. And this is a cycle that happens to a lot of youth. Uh, go inside, uh, meet people who already have been engaged in either selling drugs or in violence for a long time, and they group us together without any support that we really need. They truly just target us and forcibly confine us in human cages where we learn to be better at what we do, right? And we become angrier at the system that put us in there in the first place. Jail never saved me, and jail never saves anyone. I ended up getting caught doing some stuff that involved guns and violence, and that led me to go to prison in 2013, and I came out in 2018. But when I went in there for this last time in the penitentiary, I was able to at least start reading and analyzing the situation that I and fellow prisoners and other people on this land or on earth live in. I started reading up on colonization, uh, reading up the work of Frantz Fanon, thanks to my history teacher in the penitentiary, the programs offered by CSC. And that is Correctional Service Canada. Are very inadequate. They're useless, most of them. Those programs, they never help me. It's the opposite. So one of the only things that were positive for me in the penitentiary was the friendship and the comradeship of fellow prisoners who I owe everything to. We had a circle of friends who looked out for each other. We, you know, cooked food for each other. We shared knowledge with each other. We create these pockets of resilience within an environment that wants to put us down, always tell us that we're not worth it, that our lives are not worth it, that our freedom have to be earned. But I think as human beings, freedom is a right. It is not a privilege. We must be free. But another good thing that I took from the penitentiary was a college education. There is maybe just a very, very few penitentiaries where there is still some kind of academic program that is beyond high school. So post-secondary programs are very scarce. But I was able to complete a college degree in social sciences. And the other experience that was good within that violent environment is the chaplaincy service. Even though I consider myself an atheist, but I used to go to the Anglican church because Reverend Tim Smart is a very gentle and good person who used to bring volunteers from the outside on a weekly basis. So interacting with people who are not working for, who are not part of the carceral system was one of those good experiences. 
What really started bestowing me with that critical lens and perspective was early readings that I made, you know, discovering Franz Fanon, discovering the processes of identity and alienation from like a post-colonial analysis, learning about colonizing dynamics, how the colonizer dehumanizes the colonized and then the colonized internalizes that image and that identity. And at some point, some people, there is a moment where we become disalienated and we claim our identities instead of rejecting them like our oppressors want us to do. So I think that was like a turning point in my life, doing those readings and learning about those things. And I didn't know that I'm going to be involved in prisoner justice work. I thought that when I'm going to get out, I'm going to be involved in some kind of environmental struggle. I was reading up on that. But at the same time that I was reading up and building kind of my academic or theoretical background, I was also experiencing state violence directly. I was still someone who's confined. I was separated from my son for five years. I was separated from my family for that long. I was deportable. We were also, all of us there, subject to those microaggressions that add up from the guards. So that also gave me some knowledge that I can't get in books. And that knowledge is the knowledge that comes from the experiences of trauma and violence. And that's why we have to center the voices of people who experience these systems in our struggles and in our resistance. When I came out, I was under deportation. I was lucky enough to have a family member who went and borrowed almost $10,000 to pay for my lawyer and for my bail. And when they paid that money, I was able to go out. A lot of people don't have those supports. So we can see that it is a classic system besides being a double punishment. You know, if you consider doing time inside punishment and deportation punishment, therefore we're going to be doing two punishments for the same act. And that's determined by this notion and practice of citizenship. When I got out, I reached out to Justin Pichet, who's in Ottawa as well. He invited me to a panel, Dismantling the Carceral State. That was the title of the panel. That panel was very interesting because I learned about certain dynamics that make Ottawa a carceral space. I knew these things. It's not like I didn't know them. I experienced them. But then hearing some folks bringing it forward and putting it in words, and not only putting it in words, but informing a whole critical understanding of anti-carcerality from those experiences was interesting to me. Because I thought that's something I can do. I can take my experience and I can build critical tools for myself or even for others from my experience. And that's how I started becoming involved in anti-carceral work. Tell me about the history of the Criminalization and Punishment Education Project from its founding back in 2012 and about your involvement with it in more recent years. A group of folks, professors from the University of Ottawa and Carleton University who work alongside community members got together to problematize human caging at the Ottawa Carleton Detention Centre in order to advance community solutions to prevent and respond to social harms, to reduce imprisonment and penal system intervention, while at the same time putting forward ways to reduce the pains of imprisonment at the jail here on Algonquin territory. So over the past eight years, CPEP raised awareness 
on the issues facing by OCDC prisoners through organizing like 18 panels and public forums, dozen or more demonstrations, or visuals in the wake of deaths in custody, for art exhibition and open stages. Now we have an art auction going, organized with the Toronto Prisoner Rights Project. We organized a few ciphers and artistic events online. We organized two film screenings, issued six reports, several fact sheets, op-eds, infographics, and more than 150 memes. After years of our efforts, there was a problem with the Ottawa Carlton Detention Centre, which is the Ottawa jail, overflowing cells, overcrowding, which triggered the building of a task force and a broader discussion. We thought that the window of opportunity kind of like is going to help the community to raise awareness. We're going to hold the line a little bit further against building new prisons and stuff like that. But the ministry announced building a new jail Despite that, many community members thought that building a new jail in Ottawa is something that is bad, including people from the establishment, people from the state. There was an announcement that they're going to be replacing the 585 bed at OCDC with a new and bigger jail that will have a capacity of 725 beds. And that's why the NOPE campaign started, the No On Prison Expansion campaign is basically CPAP and other allies calling on the government to halt carceral expansion in our city because it is known that it is a failed strategy. Building new and bigger jail has been the proposed solution to address these issues even before the OCDC existed. Despite that we had three jails over the past 176 years in Ottawa, that every time we expanded their capacity in order to, quote-unquote, address the human rights abuses that happen within them, even with this failed history, the government still tried to move forward with a bigger jail in Ottawa. CPAP knows that expanding carcerality is not a solution, and this is why the NOP campaign is about proposing alternatives to incarceration and resisting this idea that a bigger jail is going to be better. How we want to do this work in CPEP is that we engage in awareness campaigns. In the initial campaign work, it included several media interventions, including a number of op-eds calling to halt the new and bigger jail to allow for greater investment in education and housing, health, mental health care, as well as diversion and decarceration measure. We also produced and disseminated and filmed interview with Senator Kim Pate, drawn her experience as a prison abolitionist advocate heading the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry during a period where reform through the replacement of the prison for women with regional penitentiaries for women failed to deliver meaningful change in the lives of prisoners to historicize the flawed idea once again being touted by the proponents of the Ottawa Correctional Complex that you can cage your way towards community well-being and safety. We also made a public campaign that because the new and bigger jail will be a private-public partnership that will cost taxpayer a billion dollars that we have to pay over a span of 30 years. We draw on the lessons from Justin Piche's course. He teaches sociopolitics of incarceration, and the fourth-year students, they made a presentation about carceral expansion and lessons they learned to resist the construction of a new jail in Ottawa. 
since then, we have been publishing op-eds about this issue. We published an infographic series, a meme series about the jail. And we are continuing this work because at the same time that the government is proposing a new and bigger jail in Ottawa, governments are rolling up deep cuts to education, social services. We see with the austerity of the poor government. And to further illustrate how the government jail expansion spending could be redirected towards the community services, we also leafleted during the provincial elections and we did community town halls and election town halls. And tell me about the jail accountability and information line. There are people at the jail at the moment. There are people that we cannot abandon. They are incarcerated comrades, they incarcerated fellow human beings who are there right now, who, not that they can't help themselves, because everyone can help themselves, but they need supporters, allies on the outside, because the jail environment is extremely restrictive and restricts them from engaging in any form of liberatory work or resistance work because of how the prison is organized. The prison is organized in a way that is very isolating. It is organized in a way that is also isolating from the outside. The prison isolates its victims. It wants to keep them under its control. The prison is a very disempowering place and it kind of strips you from your agency. So in order to do some support work with people who are incarcerated, we must recognize those restrictions and know that people inside don't need our help. They need support and solidarity work. That's it. Under the same logic of solidarity, we started the hotline. The Jail Accountability and Information Line is a prisoner-led initiative. That means that prisoners are involved in everything. They tell us what to do, and we engage in dialogue with folks, and we draft certain strategies or certain tactics, and we support folks in achieving those things on the outside. While doing the work of improving, quote-unquote, the jail, because we don't believe that we can improve the jail, we can only do some harm reduction in a violent system, we keep in mind that carceral spaces are never going to be humane or even acceptable because the carceral state forces persons into carceral spaces and it condemns them to social death and biological death in some cases. It is a violent environment. We cannot make it better. The only way to make it better is to get rid of it. These are the reasons why we started the hotline in order to do that solidarity work and try to achieve those short-term gains that will make the life inside a little bit more bearable. The jail hotline have been taking calls for a year and a half. We took more than 5,000 calls and counting from OCDC. We worked with prisoners alongside them doing a lot of projects. We submitted complaints to the Information and Privacy Commissioner in Ontario. We supported folks in a few human rights tribunal applications. We are submitting to be an intervener in a human rights application. We submitted several complaints to nurses, colleges, to physician and surgeon colleges in Ontario, to the Health Professions Appeal and Review Board. We engaged several times with the ombudsman, but the ombudsperson in Ontario, they just ignore us. We engaged with the media on several occasions. We did several campaigns. 
One of the latest ones was the OCDC Ramadan solidarity work that was done. So the jail was refusing to provide Muslim prisoners who are on Ramadan medication at the appropriate time because people who are Muslim and who are fasting cannot ingest food from sunrise to sunset approximately. But the OCDC administration were trying to force them to ingest medication while they are fasting for their religion. So we did a public campaign. We just finished organizing with folks a hunger strike that lasted 31 hours in the maximum security unit at the jail where 14 men went on a hunger strike because of the deplorable conditions of confinement that became worse since the COVID-19 global pandemic started. The initial set of demands, there were some negotiation with the administration and they presented a counter set of demands and their counter set of demands have been met by the institution. The jail accountability information line continues to monitor the implementation of those promises that the administration promised the hunger strikers that they will implement. We also played an important role into getting more demands. So when we heard about the hunger strike from some incarcerated comrades that called us, then we also heard from other people beyond those 14 men in the maximum security unit who heard about the hunger strike and they just added new demands. And the hotline was working to do that solidarity work, writing press releases, following up with incarcerated comrades on the inside about the hunger strike. That kind of work shouldn't be taken lightly in ways because people inside are subject to state violence at all times. They are the ones who will experience violence at the hand or the henchmen of the state. If something would happen to the extreme that I'm talking about, we are going to raise public awareness. We are going to have lawyers. If the jail administration attacks some of the hunger strikers and we are working with folks inside, folks inside are keeping themselves safe and they are telling us how we can help them in keeping themselves safe in a way from state-sanctioned violence after they just engage in some strong political move that the administration might consider as a threat. So given the uprising against police brutality and anti-black racism that's going on right now, I think it's fair to say that we're seeing an unprecedented upsurge in popular critical consciousness, particularly focused on the policing side of criminalization and punishment systems. What would you say needs to be happening right now to turn this upsurge into sustained, ongoing prisoner justice and prison abolitionist organizing? What I think should be happening, and I see that is happening, is not only strong critique of these systems, but also we must present alternatives. This is a project that needs the mass mobilization of community members from all walks of life. Now it is time for folks who think that they're allies to, you know, sacrifice some of their time to support people who are already doing the work on the ground. If anyone has privilege, if anyone has time on their hand, instead of just sharing content online, they should also sacrifice their time. They should join the movement, but offer their time and labor to these movements. And also be wary of how talking about defunding the police is an idea that can be very much co-opted very quickly by a very centrist liberal political class. And obviously, that's not going to be better than any conservative solution, because we know that liberalism just reproduces white supremacy on Turtle Island. Police abolition is about the restructuring of our societies. It is about creating the societies that we won't need armed forces roaming the streets in order to enforce white supremacy. 
I think that it is important to seize this moment and to organize in order for these notions not to be co-opted by the liberals. Because at the end of the day, the police are a very violent force. They are violators. They are abusers. They are abusing us. People are already tired in organizing circles. People are stretched thin. And now we have even more work to do. And people who think that they're allies and who think that they are, you know, woke, has to join these movements. But in order to amplify the voices of people who have been already experiencing these systems, who have been resisting against them for a long time. You have been listening to my interview with Suhail Bensliman of the Criminalization and Punishment Education Project. To learn more about their work, go to cp-ep.org. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.